Jeremiah 31, we read, With weeping, speaking of God's people in the exile, with weeping they shall come, and by supplications I will lead them. I will make them walk by streams of water on a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Yes, they're in exile. Yes, they're struggling. Yes, they're weeping. But I will be, I will walk with them, and I'll bring them by streams of water. That's God's word, brothers and sisters. And so he says, hear the word of the Lord, O O nations, and declare in the coastlands afar off, and say, he who scatters Israel will gather them, and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. So even though they were scattered, ironically, in their scattered state, they were gathered. Their hearts, their wits, their minds were, were, were united. As David says, Lord, unite my heart to reverence you. They were united by the shepherd who led them in the wilderness. And he led them by streams of water. Brothers and sisters, again, that stream of water is the word of God. As we gather this day to fellowship around it and the um, uh, word that we will indeed enjoy Jesus Christ through the Lord's uh, table. So let us indeed come now to um, this time where he leads us by the stream. And may God give us the grace to genuinely participate in, uh, 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 to uh, um, sup long and, and richly in the stream which he's given us here in his word. Brothers and sisters, I'm going to ask you if you were to turn to Romans. Yes, it's not Malachi. Um, the sermon would have been a two-part. I didn't want to do one and then wait two weeks for a vacation and come back. So I decided that this week I'm going to go back and uh, we're going to just focus on one passage. So we're going to go to Romans 5, 6 through 8 this, this day. And uh, this is an incredible passage. It's, it actually is a uh, um, digression on the part of Paul, as I'll reference here in a little bit. Um, and so it really stands on its own. 6 through 8 is a pericope in a pericope, which stands on its own. And uh, um, is, it'll, by God's grace, as we sup upon this and feast upon it, we'll be fed this morning. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word. So let me invite you to stand together with me as we read it during this time. Hear now the word of our King. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for this rich stream by which we have been transplanted, towards which our roots have been um, extended by your spirit. And that, Lord, we can sup upon today. Lord, I pray that this truly would be a feast. Lord, gorgeous, we pray. Gorgeous upon Christ. Gorgeous upon your spirit. You, O oh Lord, your redemption, your salvation, your love and grace. Father, may we feast richly this day upon you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. When I was a very young Christian, I was introduced to what is known as the transcendency of God. Now, I know you know what that means because I've recently defined it, and we've, you've probably studied it, and you've been defined many times in your Christian walk. But for me, it was life-changing, literally life-changing. God's transcendency is referring to his otherness, the fact that he's not part of creation. He is not of creation. He is above it. He's outside of it. 
And so if you think of not just, I'm not talking about our globe or even our galaxy, but think of all of the galaxies that make up, that constitute the universe, the 200 plus billion galaxies. Brothers and sisters, those are but a speck to God. God is that transcendent. He's that different. He's that other. It's different from him. He is present, but he is transcendent. He is over it. R.C. Sproul defined transcendency this way. The word transcendence means literally to climb across. It is defined as exceeding usual limits. To transcend is to rise above something to go above and beyond a certain limit. Thus, when we speak of the transcendence of God, we are talking about that sense in which God is above and beyond us. It points to the infinite distance that separates him from every creature. He is an infinite cut, infinite cut above anything else. And so though we are made in the image of God and therefore bear some of his likeness, nevertheless, brothers and sisters, God is not man. He is different from us. We have knowledge, but God is omniscient. We have power. God is omnipotent. We have, we have life. We have existence. But God is self-existent. We, indeed, are people who are confined to time and space, but God is omnipresent. When you and I start thinking about God, it's natural for us to think of what God in terms of what we know. That's what Ezekiel does in Ezekiel 1. We're trying to describe this transcendent being who, if without his condescending grace, we could never know him. So we try to describe him, and you and I recognize the only way we can describe him is through what we know. And the moment we say God is this, what we know, we just made God part of creation, and therefore we've defined him. So we, we recognize that when we talk about God, he's incomparable. The best we can say is with Ezekiel, he's like. He's like this. But he's incomparable. And that isn't true when it comes to his love. Think about that. When we think of God's love, we always think of ourselves. We always think of, not necessarily of ourselves, but we think of it in light of man's love. And that is why at times we can find ourselves so critical of God. God, I would never do this, therefore, and I love, and therefore, that much, you must not be a loving God. If I, if I wouldn't do this, me, and God must measure up to my standards, then that means God can't be loving if he doesn't do what I think he should do. Brothers and sisters, Paul comes to this point in Romans 5 and he has to stop and take a breath as he describes the love of God. Listen, or if your Bible's open, verse 5, he, he's talking about the benefits that flow from the redeeming grace of God. Okay, Romans 5, 1, there's therefore peace. And from that, Romans 5, 1 through 11, he describes these, or 12, he describes these glorious benefits that flow from Christ's cross work. And in verse 5, he's, he's, he's rounding out with one of them, and he says, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. That word poured out does not mean trickle. That means a deluge. When I was in second grade, 1976, there was a flood that came through the Big Thompson Canyon. So those of you who are, who are older than second me or my age may remember it. Um, Big Thompson flood. I remember it vividly because my next door neighbor's friends were twins and one of them died in that flood. So it sticks in my mind today very vividly. Well, this, this flood occurred in the Big Thompson Canyon 
1976, when after 12 inches of rainfall in that valley, a massive um, uh, tidal wave came through, ripping through the Thompson Canyon. And um, in fact, if you drive up the Big Thompson today, you'll see these massive boulders the size of small houses in the middle of the river or on its side. Those boulders were moved there by that torrent. That's what Paul has in mind. A torrent of God's love so powerful, it will move you from your sin. It will transform you. It will, it will resurrect you if you're dead. That's the love of God. And because he references that, he has to take a breath. And so he, that breath stops him from carrying on talking about the benefits that flow from Christ's peace. And so verses 6 through 8, if you have your text open, is a digression. It's an excursus on the incomparable love of God. Yeah, Paul is a Jew. And as a Jew, you know, if you know Hebrew at all, you know that the Jewish mind tend to think, of, think in terms of puns and, and uh, somewhat like stage play. And so um, Paul does that here. Six through eight, when you read it, may not in the Greek or in the English read this way, but the way it's written, it is dramatic. Paul does not just say, oh, by the way, God loves us. Six through eight is filled with drama. So I wish I had titled this, I just have the incomparable love of God. It should be a drama of the incomparable love of God. In fact, I'm going to use, because of that, I'm using language from stage play. So we're going to begin, first and foremost, looking at the cast of the objects of God's love. Notice with me the cast. There are five members on this drama that is being played out before our eyes this very moment in this text. Notice with me the the first character, verse 6a, for while we were still helpless. The word helpless here is used not literally, but metaphorically or spiritually or morally. He's not talking, it's not metaphorically, I'm sorry, it's morally. It's not physical, it's morally, I'm helpless. But to understand this word, I do want to reference one passage that describes physical weakness or physical helplessness because it gives you the tenor of this word. It's found in Acts 5, listen to it, Um, describing the early church. They even carried the sick, that's the word, that's our word, helpless, the helpless out into the streets and lay them on cots and pillar, uh, uh, pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. In this word, we're not talking about people who have a sniffle. We're talking about people who are physically unable to move themselves. Now, morally, that's what we're talking about when we talk about this word. Notice it in, in, in Matthew chapter 26. Here it's used morally. Um, when Christ uh, found the disciples sleeping when they should have been praying, we read, Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is, that's this, this is our word, weak, unable, incapable. Any moral desire that you would have to do, the helpless cannot do it. That's what this word is. It makes us think of Romans 7. And Paul saying, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. That's helpless. That state is being helpless. So the first character in this glorious drama is this helpless individual. The things they want to do, they don't do. The things they don't want to do, they do. That's them. Secondly, and each one of these gets worse, the first three. Notice verse 6b. We get a second second member. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. All right? So the second character is the ungodly man. And the ungodly man is, um, well, let's first of all define godly. Godly, a godly individual 
is, uh, speaks of a person who has two concurrent things going on in their lives. Reverence for God and love for God. So a godly individual loves God and reverences God. An ungodly individual does not have reverence for God, therefore does not love God, but loves themselves. And therefore what they do, they do out of love for self and not for God. So if we were to make a distinction, unlike the helpless who are spiritually unable to do any good, the ungodly don't want to do good. They want to do what their flesh desires. So, so, so the ungodly man, unlike the helpless, if there's not a struggle there. They don't reverence God. They don't love him. They do what their flesh desires, and so they give in to their flesh. That's the ungodly. That then brings us, so that's worse than the helpless, and that brings us to a third character, and that's found in verse 8b, and that's the sinner. Notice, but God then demonstrates his own love towards us that while, that while we were yet sinners, and that while we were yet sinners. So this third character is the word sinner. And this word in the Jewish culture was a derogatory term. Okay, so you think of Galatians uh, 2.15. Paul says we're not, Jew, we're not sinners like, I'm sorry, we are Jews by nature, not sinners among the Gentiles. Derogatory. It's a negative term. Um, and it refers to anyone not under the law of God. Anyone who doesn't have the law of God is a sinner. And because they're sinners, they do all kinds of horrible things. Well, it, this word also therefore became used not just of Gentiles, it is a derogatory term, but of anyone who, being ungodly, becomes lawless in all realms and therefore becomes defined by their sin. Okay, so um, unlike the uh, um, uh, helpless or the uh, godless, um, the ungodly man uh, chooses to appease their flesh. The sinner is defined by their rebellion and so lives in conscious and open opposition to God. So each one of these get worse. You got the helpless, and then you got the ungodly, and then you've got the sinner. Okay? That's, those are three characters on the, on the stage. Now, on the other side, you've got verse 7a, a righteous man. Verse 7a, for one will hardly die for a righteous man. This word, the righteous man, is used in reference to a man. Um, who is righteous in reference to a standard. So the word righteous is not a self-defining term. You have to have a context. Okay, you could have a righteous prisoner. You could have a righteous murderer. Okay, in, 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 in this sense that while he's, a, he's horribly, he's done these horrible things, nevertheless, in the context of the prison system, he's, he's a model pr uh, prisoner. Therefore, you could use the word the way it would be used in Greek. He's a righteous prisoner. He's a morally upright guy. Now, righteous towards God, different story. To be righteous towards God, you have to be in accordance with his character, and that's none of us can be that outside of Jesus Christ. But the word righteous here is not talking about saved people. It's talking about people who are, who basically, in this context, are good citizens. Okay? The righteous man is the good citizen. He does good. He, he follows the rules. The speed limit, he, he doesn't, you know, if you saw him, you'd say, man, that's the perfect neighbor. He cuts his lawn when he should. You know, he's just a good citizen. In this context, in Judaism, he's a good Christian. He's a good Jew. Okay, he, he goes to church every week. He, he attends all the services, you know. He, he reads the Bible every single day. Uh, okay, that's the righteous man. Okay, that doesn't mean he's saved. That doesn't mean he's even a good man, as the next one is. It just means he looks good. If you looked at him, you'd say, man, now that is a good person. 
That's a good Christian man. That's a good Christian woman. We might say that culturally. All right, then next to him would be, well, actually, before I go there, and that is why when we're reading, for example, Genesis 6, 9, Noah was a righteous man. You might read that and say, wait, how did he, how could he be, no one's righteous. Romans 3, 10, no one's righteous. No, not even one. How can Genesis 6 say Noah's a righteous man? Because the reference here is not towards God. It's towards his religion and his culture in that day. In that day, he was a model citizen. Okay? See the same thing with Joseph. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. Okay, being a good Jewish male, and a good Jewish male understood there was more to obeying God than just simply external law, which says, in this case, she should be killed because she's committed adultery or fornication. Um, he's, a good, he's a good man. He's a good Jewish man who understands Micah 6, 8. He is, uh, that, right, that God is... Um, uh, what, you know, we know what is good, what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, to love kindness. Joseph's loving kindness. He's being a good Jewish man here. So that's what that word righteous means, okay? Now, next we have the good man, verse 7b. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even die. The good man. This, may, this is one step further. The righteous man may be a good citizen, <laughs> but he may be a jerk. He may be a good citizen, but he may be not very mindful of you. Okay? That, that, again, it's just a good, externally good person. The good man, the word here is the word agathos. There's two words for good in the Bible, primarily agathos and kalos. Kalos is the word for physical beauty. Agathos refers to an inward beauty that radiates. This is the good man. This is a man who is filled with, with, with inward virtue. And this inward virtue results in him being a righteous man. So you would confuse a good man with a righteous man from appearance. Then you spend time with him, you'd say, this man's a good citizen. He's a righteous man. But you know what? He's, at times, he's, he's rude. So at times, he's not the nicest guy. The good man, you'd walk away saying, wow, that guy's pleasant. What a wonderful man. He's so gracious and generous and kind and thoughtful, the whole bit. And by, on top of that, he follows the speed limit. And he, 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 right? he's a good citizen, all right? So he's, he's all those. So those brothers and sisters are the, the cast. So these five characters are on this stage, okay? And now we come to the scene. Let me, let me give you what the scene is. Okay, five characters on the stage, on the platform. Now let's paint the background in the scene. Okay, based upon Paul's reference to dying for others, we know that each one of these men are tied, bound, accused, uh, sentenced, and now have the death penalty prescribed for them. So they're all, they're awaiting their execution. Now in this day, we know Rome executed by a cross. So I want you to imagine five crosses on this stage. And none of these men are on that cross yet. They're at the base of that cross. So they're not carrying the cross beam. They're on the, the, the cross is standing above them, and they're about ready to be nailed up to that cross. And, it's, and there's a progression here. Okay? We've got, on this side of the stage, we've got the good man. And then you've got the, the fourth one would be the righteous man. And the third one would be the um, sinner. I'm sorry, the... Uh, um, uh, what is it? The helpless. And then the next one would be the ungodly. And the last one would be the sinner. So it's a progression. Go from the good man all the way to the, the sinner. It's very dramatic language. It's very picturesque. Okay? So be, based upon people dying, that's the scene. 
But we also see that it's public because no, it, he talks about no one coming forward to die for, uh, for them, which tells us that in this scene, this is a public execution. Five men have been accused, five men have been declared guilty, and five men are going to die uh, today. Okay, and, and, there's, and there's a crowd that's gathered. And in this crowd, no one's willing to come forward. There's some that are tempted because there's some good people here, but no one's coming forward, okay, um, in this drama. It is certainly for the first three, okay, for the ungodly, for the helpless, for the sinner. No one's going to even worry about them. But that righteous man, you know, he obeys the law, and then you got that good guy. Will someone come forward? Well, Paul has an opinion on that matter, and so does God. Notice with me verse 7. One will hardly die for a righteous man. The focus of this phrase, brothers and sisters, is not on the physical difficulty. It would be to physically die for a righteous man, but the physical difficulty in finding someone who would come forward. Okay, now that doesn't mean because we don't like righteous people or we don't like good citizens or or good Christians. It's because we value our life more. Then, then w- would you give up your life for someone who, who never misses a quiet time, but is um, at times perhaps even rude towards you? You probably wouldn't. Um, in fact, I dare say you definitely would not. Paul was no stranger to martyrdom. Paul knew martyrdom. He knew, he knew stories and he saw it. Eventually would be one. And he's saying here, I have never heard it said, not one time ever, in my lifetime, nor do I know of any history where anyone gave their life up in place of a good citizen. I mean, Socrates died as a good citizen. No one took his death, right? So he's saying the likelihood that this crowd in this, in this, this drama that's going on or this, this scene, um, there's this crowd. No one's being tempted to die even for the righteous man. But then he says, notice with me verse 7b, for one would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even die. So Paul here is not saying someone's come forward to die for them. He's saying, I'll concede. I've never heard of it and never seen it. But I will concede to you that it's possible in this world um, that someone would dare give their life for a good man. Hey, man, I know that guy. He, he's a good citizen. On top of that, he is gracious. He's a kind individual. But Paul says, perhaps. He's never seen it. He's never heard of it. He doesn't even know about it. But he's saying, I can see that could possibly take place. So it's a possibility. The improbability of someone dying for a righteous man has now become a possibility, though it's not going to happen. I mean, think of it. World War II. Have you ever heard of one German? Give me any of you. Please, afterwards, let me know. I was meditating on this this past week. World War II. Remember when you've seen the videos, or the probably from movies, not real life perhaps, but the videos of they line up Jewish citizens in their Jewish clothes. I mean, they're, they're, this isn't in a Nazi prison camp. This is in the streets. They line them up against a stone wall, and they'd kill them, right? Have you, can, you, can you ever remember a time where a German citizen said, no, not that Jew. He's a good person. I cannot think of any time. I just see him killing them. You never see anyone coming forward to save any one of those people. And that's what Paul's saying. Yeah, we can conceive of it. Yeah, I can think of a world where this... Now, we're not talking about father, wife, children, parent relationship. We're talking about citizenship. Would you die for a good citizen who's a good person? Would you give your life for that person you, you barely know, but you know he's a good guy? 
You wouldn't. No one would. Although there's a possibility there could be. Okay, that's the scene. So, five crosses. You've got this scene playing out before your eyes. It's very dramatic. It's very tense. The crowds are there. And now we come to the drama. This is the actual, all right, lights, camera, action. And this is what happens. In the crowd, no one's standing, no one's coming forward. Everyone's just watching. But there's this buzz in the crowd. Someone is coming forward. Notice with me, verse 8. And it's very, again, dramatic. But God demonstrates, that's the key word. He demonstrates his own love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The word for demonstrate literally means to place alongside and so to commend. So to demonstrate is to come up to a person who perhaps everyone's jeering at. That's the context. To come up, put your arm around them and say, I commend this individual. That's what this word means. It doesn't simply mean I'm going to have someone else do it. Let me demonstrate on how to, how to knit. Bob, won't you do it? No, it's to demonstrate is to actually do it. Okay, but to do it more than just simply physically do it, it involves a commendation. So it's not just simply demonstrating a physical act. It involves a commendation. You know, we live in a world where knitting is evil. You know, and little Jenny, she loves knitting, and she hides up in her room knitting by candlelight at, at night. And it will, the word gets out that Jenny's knits, and so the whole world is jeering at, at Jenny. To demonstrate would be for you to go, now you would go and pick up knitting needles and knit right next to her. That would be the word demonstration, is to let the world know that not only am I doing what she's doing, but what she's doing is right. Okay, I'm, going, I'm showing you something. I'm demonstrating something to, to you. That's this word. Kittle defines this word, says it carries the idea of showing or demonstrating publicly. That's why it's dramatic. It's very moving here. Paul is being very, very Jewish here. That you, He wants you to see it. So you've got on this stage five condemned people who are going to die. And God now publicly, which means the crowds parted, and everyone's noticing this one person, Jesus Christ, coming forward. Paul's already talked about Christ's death being public, right? Romans 3.25, speaking of Christ's cross, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. Okay, same word. Okay, it's, it, Christ, Paul clearly speaking of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so this is what the drama is. In the midst of this horrible situation where five people have been rounded up for a crime, two of which did not commit. At least that's what the crowd's uh, thinking. They're all going to die. They're all going to die. Two of which are not guilty, but they're called to be guilty. And so they're going to die. Now, are two going to, will anyone come forward and give your life for these innocent, good, and righteous man? No one's coming forward. But then the commotion comes. And, and you're thinking in your heart, I go forward, but I'm not bold enough. I'd, I'd love to give my life for that person, for that good man, because he helped me. So you're really struggling. And at that moment, someone comes forward and you're like, praise God. Someone's going to come for that good man. You know what this, what this man does? This is the drama. Okay? 
he comes up on, on the, the platform and he walks past the good man. And you think, oh, it's the righteous man. Past the righteous man. You go, okay, well, the helpless man. He, he's, a, he's a good guy. He just can't do what he wants to do. Right past the helpless man. To the ungodly man? Are you nuts? He passes the ungodly man. And he comes up to the sinner, the one that we all hate. Every one of us hate this man. This is a horrible person. We all agree should be damned to hell for eternity. He walks up to that man and says, this is my cross. That's what Paul's saying. That's what it means to demonstrate. Look at the text. And God demonstrates his own love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, he died. He died for the sinner. Now, brothers and sisters, make matters worse. This sinner, it was in no way redeemable. This sinner was not ready to mend his ways. He wasn't willing to change if only he, if only, um, you know, something ha- happened. And uh, this uh, person was not in any way having any kind of virtue inside of them whatsoever. The rather, it was that while we were, he was in a state of rebellion against God. Yet sinners, Romans 8, ver- Romans 5, 8, verse 6, still sin- uh, sinners, Christ came for us. This sinner was not penitent. This sinner is looking at the crowds and jeering at the crowds. That's what this sinner's doing right now. He cried, Christ, God passes off every one of those people to the helpless individual. Well, I'm not mixing the, the words here. To the one who's, who's, who's lost in his sin. Amazing. It, it makes me think of the poem I read. It, this was a Wizard of Id, guys. Okay, Jerry, if you know his name, Johnny Hart. He used to write the Wizard of Id in the Saturday morning cartoons. This, I, I cut this one out. I've since lost the comic. But this was the poem on Easter. Picture yourself tied to a tree condemned for the sins of eternity. That's the sinner. Then picture a spear part in the air seeking your heart to end your despair. Suddenly a knight, an armor of white, stands in the gap betwixt you and its flight. And shedding his armor of God, I would change that a little bit, for you bears the lance that runs him through. His heart has been pierced that yours may beat, and the blood of his corpse washes your feet. Picture yourself in raiment white, cleansed by the blood of the lifeless night. Never to mourn the prince who was down, for he is not lost. It is you who are found. Brothers and sisters, that's the drama here. Okay? And yet it gets even better. Because you've got to realize, who did Christ do that? Who did he die? Who, of those five characters, who did God choose to spare? Who did he, guys? Everyone say it. The sinner. Not the good man. How do you, how do you view yourself today, Christian? I, I'm, I'm a good guy. You know, I, I'm not like those people. He didn't die for the, for the good man. Well, I'm a good citizen. I'm not always good. I'm not always an angel. You know, I'm the good citizen. I generally do what's right. That's most of us in this room. I generally do what is right. He didn't die for that one. Oh, well, I don't, okay, then if you're going to say I'm worse, then if I'm going to be a sinner, then I'll be the helpless guy, right? The things I want to do, I don't. The things, at least I can have that nobility of struggle. He didn't, he didn't die for that man. Okay, didn't the ungodly? I don't want to be the ungodly. That's, every one of us here, why do we defend ourselves? Why is it that when we sin in front of people, we, we act as, as if it's no big deal? This morning, I was, my car was started. I'm warming it up. 
I'm outside and my neighbors are going on a road trip and it's very obvious that the husband and wife are fighting. So I'm sitting there watching them. I can't hear them. I just see the, 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 these fast motions and this, this slamming of doors and I'm going, oh, they're fighting. I'm so sorry. And the gentleman who rarely ever, ever acknowledges me. I'll go outside. He'll be five feet from me. I'll go, hey, Bob. And he doesn't even turn. The wife always says, hey. He's in the middle of this fight. He's facing me. His wife's back to me. And all of a sudden, he looks up and goes, he wants to show he's not mad. He wants to show he's not that bad. Oh, no, everything's fine with me. That's us, brothers and sisters. We don't want to identify with the sinner. We don't. Everything within us says, I'm not that bad. Brothers and sisters, understand that God's love is only given to the, the, the sinner. They're worse than the helpless. They're worse than the ungodly. Yet there's more to this text. Notice with me verse 6. For while we were still helpless at the right time. This is redemptive language. At the right time, Christ died for the godly. This implies a plan. Do you see it? Look at the text. At the right time, he died. This is not being, this is not Hollywood drama where they're nailing him up to the cross and at the, at the last moment, Christ intercedes. Nope, that's not, that, that's not what this means. This is talking about a redemptive plan which precedes this moment. For example, Romans 8, for whom God foreknew in eternity past, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. God set his love upon us in eternity past. In time, therefore, it meant he worked redemption. Galatians 4, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son. So there's a plan here. God, Christ's death Christ coming forward for the sinner was operating according to a divinely ordained plan. When did it begin? E Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Did you see that phrase? That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. When Paul says, at the right time, he's referencing the eternal, redemptive plan of God that was fashioned before the world was made. What was the plan? The plan was to die for not good, righteous, helpless, or ungodly people, but sinners. Why? Ephesians 1, 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Look at that phrase. I believe it's, be, it's behind me. Stare at those words. To the praise. Glory means substance. To the praise of the substance of God's grace. God's grace is not vain. It's packed. It's filled. It's heavy. It's weighty. Which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. Brothers and sisters, God's plan from eternity was... God, we oftentimes think that we're either the righteous man or the good man who just struggles. And if we can't be them, then we'll be the helpless. We don't want to be the ungodly. And by golly, we're not the sinner. The, the sinner. That's not us. 
Do you understand God's plan? His plan was to redeem before the world began, to demonstrate what his love, his grace, his character. He, his plan from the beginning of the world was to demonstrate his incomparable love on the drama of a crucifixion. It was to demonstrate that, that we might come to a greater understanding of the love and the graciousness and kindness and glory and character of God. That was his eternal plan. Do you know what that means? If you're saved today, who are you? Can we once for all, I will never get over it, but can we once for all try to get over it? We're not the ungodly. You're not the helpless. You're the sinner. I was meditating upon this, and I was thinking to myself, you know what, brothers and sisters? You can't do do-overs. You can't. God's providence, there are no do-overs. But like, what was it? Like, it's a wonderful life. Let's give him the picture of what life would be like if I was never born. Okay? Brothers and sisters, what would you be like if God had not given you grace? I want you to think about this. God didn't save the ungodly. They're too good. God didn't save the helpless. They're too good. God saved the person who was spiritually not, had nothing to offer him. And if you're saying you're saved today, then guess what you are in the drama? Guess what you're confessing this very moment? Let's get over it. I am the chief of sinners. That's the only one God is going to use on the day of judgment to display his glory, his, his, his grace. It's the sinner. And if you're saved, then you are identifying not with the weak or the helpless, but the bankrupt. And you're saying to the world right now, yes, I'm a loser. You're not saying, oh, you know what, yes, but I'm not that bad. I know you heard me arguing with my wife, but I'm really not that bad. It's her fault. Brothers and sisters, stop it. That's, those are the glorious words for counseling. Stop it. Right? Just stop it. Stop it. Stop identifying. Stop thinking of yourself more than you are. You and I must identify ourselves today, tomorrow, in this coming week as the sinner. And the more you and I do that, the more God's love and grace and kindness will be shed abroad in our hearts because we'll see you didn't earn any of it. See, the problem with the helpless and the problem with the ungodly is that they have some ground to stand upon to say, I wasn't as bad as that guy. So when God looked down the corridors of time and saw me, he saw me as a good guy. And you know what we do when we take that little tiny uh, premise, that little premise that I'm a good guy? We take that and we make, we rebuild again what was once destroyed and we start making standards. And you all do it. I know because I do it. We take these standards and we say, this is what a Christian must look like. I know if I were to ask you, what does a Christian do? You'd all say, you'd all have a standard. And I know that because what happens when you don't meet that standard enough times? You start questioning if you're saved. I think of it. This is the craziest thing in the world. You're a sinner. What do sinners do, brothers and sisters? They sin. 
But there's going to be people here who are going to, who are going to define their salvation upon their sinlessness or the fact that they don't sin, right? Because the moment you sin too much, what do you start saying? I can't be saved. Why? Well, because because I, I, I blew my, uh, my temper again. How, co- how could a saved person do that? Tell me, Christian, how could a saved person do that? You know what you've just done? You place yourself on the law, and Romans 7 tells us when you put yourself on the law, the law is going in your flesh. You're going to take advantage of that law and make it a standard that's going to condemn you. No wonder we're so grief-torn. No wonder we're so burdened and so bur- uh, depressed in our walks because we are constantly rebuilding these standards and using them to judge ourselves. Man, I, 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 and, and, and the sense of conscience always falls short. Brothers and sisters, look at the drama. Watch, rewind it and watch the drama again every day, all day. Christ walked past the good men, the righteous men, the helpless, the ungodly, and he came to the sinner, the helpless, not the middle guy, okay? He came to the sinner, and he took your sin. And though, so rather than having this standard where you and I think, well, he saved me because I had some good in me. No. No good in you. But get this, lastly. Don't allow yourself to be defined by your sin. Yes, you're a sinner. That doesn't mean that defines you. What defines you as a Christian is not your sin. What defines you is the grace of God and his imputed righteousness on your account. So what defines you now is, I'm the loved of God. I'm the beloved But you can't enjoy that and embrace that until you recognize first what you are without God. If God wasn't present in your life, this is what my meditation was. Could it be on the last day God takes complete grace out of everyone in this room's life and on the day of judgment, what would we be? Well, I'd be worse than Jeffrey Dahmer. We don't think of ourselves that way. But if God withhold his grace, if he chose sinners to save and he didn't save Hitler, then you and I must be worse than Hitler. Because God only saves the worst. And on the day of judgment, he's in a parade before the world. Behold the grace and the love of God. He gave up his son for this. And that's you. Incredible. Brothers and sisters, your worth is not what you do or how you view yourself. Your worth is how God views you. And how does God view you today? You are his beloved. (laughs) You meditate on that for a little bit, and you know what you'll be filled with? You'll be filled with joy. But you got to get to the bad news first. He died for the sinners to get to the good news. He set his love upon you before the world began. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word and all of what it says, but Lord, specifically as we've focused on 6 through 8 of Romans, we are so grateful for the drama that you just once again showed, paraded before our eyes. Upon that cross was not an ungodly man or or the helpless man, but Lord, me. 
It's that cross that Jesus Christ took. Father, we are the beloved. We are your people. We are your bride who you set your love upon before the world began to demonstrate to the world the nature of your love. And we praise you in extremes that this isn't dramatic license, that this is literal. You died for the most wretched for us. Father, how I pray this day that you would penetrate the cold hearts of your people, allowing them to apprehend this. Lord, to have it uh, like the Thompson flood move the boulders of unbelief and the boulders of, of, of recalcitrance and the boulders of boredom. And that, Lord, that would wash clean each and every day that we renew our faith and we, we think of the gospel, reflect upon it, that, Lord, we would be a people filled with overflowing joy in the Lord for what you have done, regardless of what my spouse thinks of me, the illnesses which I face, the difficult future before us. God, please, overwhelm us with your love. For the one who hears this and does not know you, God, we pray you would work. Holy Spirit, open their eyes that they might see their need for Christ. Deliver them from their sin and redeem them. That, Lord, we all this day, as we'll do in Sunday school, reflect and reverence and wonder over the kind and gentle heart that you have towards us. We love you, Lord, and praise you. In Jesus' name.